This is The Guardian. Today, as Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister ends in disarray and disgrace, we look back on how it was always going to end this way. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. It, thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with... Anyone who was expecting a sort of voice-cracking, tearful Theresa May style departure will have been disappointed. Uh, he, he was absolutely as bullish and confident and Boris-like, as he's always been. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us... I think it was one of those moments where you thought, does this man really have a kind of interior life? A lot of people say there really isn't much and that he's quite hollow on the inside. And this was oddly impersonal in that respect. It was just another performance. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in mid-term after... It was kind of trademark, wasn't it? I mean, there was a lot of bluster and he was still very confident, but managing to just shove some jabs and digs in where he could. It did include those digs at his colleagues. No uh, contrition, no word even of acknowledgement of what it was that had driven him out. It was just that the Conservative Party had had some uh, fit of hysteria. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And the, a, a herd mentality uh, had sort of gripped the Conservative Party and they had stampeded to get rid of him. Uh, in other words, really disparaging his former colleagues, suggesting they were just blowing with the wind, really. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do this country. After just under three years in power, the support of Johnson's party collapsed within 24 hours. And yesterday, Johnson was forced to resign leaving the Tory party in a leadership crisis and Johnson still hoping to cling on until the autumn with a new cabinet. It left many people wondering if this was always the way a Boris Johnson premiership would implode. Our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you. There's a curious kind of symmetry to the rule of Boris Johnson because it began in lies and a brazen disregard for the rules and it ends the same way in a lie and a brazen disregard for the rules. And that symmetry bookends these three brief, intense and chaotic years of the Johnson Premiership. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, the lies and fall of Boris Johnson. 
Jonathan Friedland, you're a Guardian columnist and you've seen your fair share of governments come and go. We've now seen a whirlwind of resignations, damning statements, ministerial appointments, even a ministerial sacking. Going into Wednesday, Johnson surely knew that it was going to be rough after Sunak and Javid had resigned. And at Prime Minister's questions, he clearly didn't have his party behind him. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top, and I believe that is not going to change. And then he faced a humiliating two-hour grilling at the Liaison Committee. The charades up, the game's up, really. Will you be Prime Minister tomorrow? Uh, uh, of course, uh, Mr McNeil. Uh, but the next uh, week... Um, what did you make of the day as it unfolded? Well, it's quite true that it was a dizzying day. And if you had a normal prime minister, it would have just been mind-boggling. But instead, because of the way Boris Johnson is, it had a kind of curious sort of inevitability about it. This man being in denial, you know, asked by one member of the committee, how's your week been? Prime Minister, how's, how's your week going? Terrific. How <laughs> Um, And on some delusional level, you almost sort of believe he thinks it, that, yeah, he just relishes the combat. You know, my colleague Raphael Baer made this point on Twitter uh, recently that uh, Boris Johnson's one of those people who thinks as long as the final whistle hasn't blown, as long as you're still playing, well, there's still a chance you could win. A guy like me, it's a bit Trumpian, who clings on, well, in a way you wrong for your opponents. And who knows, something might come up. And I think that's what's behind this desire of his to stay to the autumn. I don't think it's because he thinks, oh, that will be a smooth and orderly departure. I think he thinks, you never know, something could come up. There could be some big epic catastrophe in the country that means people say, it's better for the prime minister to stay. As long as I'm still in Downing Street, I'm in the game. Uh, And so that's why you did get this mad day where more and more people had to resign. In normal politics, two or three would have been enough. Johnny, as Johnson left the liaison committee on Wednesday and entered Downing Street, we could only really speculate at what was going on behind closed doors. But what was happening at that point? Publicly, more and more resignations were happening. They were happening, you know, by, at sort of 10 minute intervals. And publicly, there was talk that the three big ministers, including Priti Patel, who had always been a Boris Johnson loyalist, and Nadim Zahawi, who just that, in, you know, less than 24 hours earlier had been made the new chancellor, they were going uh, stony faced into Downing Street also to tell him uh, the writing was on the wall. Did it remind you at all, was it at all like the moment when Margaret Thatcher tried to face off each member of her cabinet one by one when she was also facing the end? A bit. It did remind me of that. And I think um, there was something deliberate about that. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, it's always said, had deliberately said when she heard the cabinet had turned against her, she said, well, I dare them to tell me that one by one to my face. She thought that they would wimp out one by one when they looked her eyeball to eyeball. And that's not how it turned out. They did actually say to her face, uh, it's time to go. Uh, Despite that history, Boris Johnson tried the same manoeuvre and insisted that they see him one on one. But unlike Margaret Thatcher, where actually it did persuade her time was up and she was going to have to go, Boris Johnson just thought, yeah, soldier on. So as the evening wore on, there were two factions in Downing Street, those who were telling him his time was up, and then your diehard loyalists, Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees-Mogg. And then amidst all of that, Johnson throws a curveball. Boris Johnson has sacked Michael Gove, just confirmed by number 10, 
the man who scuppered the 2016 leadership bid uh, uh, ambitions of Boris Johnson, now fired by Boris Johnson. Earlier today, Johnny, what on earth was that about and why him? Well, much more was going on than people realised. I mean, for one thing, several hours before the committee had met, Michael Gove, uh, the levelling up secretary, had met privately with the prime minister and told him to go. Um, The significance of that is that Michael Gove, I think, regarded by Conservatives certainly as, as the heavyweight in the Boris Johnson cabinet, somebody who has made left a real imprint on every department he's run. But also they were fellow travellers together. They were comrades together in the Vote Leave referendum campaign of 2016. Now that turned sour because when Boris Johnson sought to be Prime Minister after that campaign in 2016, Michael Gove, having been his campaign manager, turned on him and then said, I don't think he's got the character to do this job. Slightly prescient words, as it turned out. But they have that long history together and they were the two big Brexit beasts. And so it was on some level a huge psychological blow, a kind of betrayal that Gove had turned round and said that. And therefore, he fired him by telephone and his spokesperson came out to say it was because Gove was, quote, a snake, unquote. But it's significant because it was a final rupturing of that old Brexit alliance. Johnny, it would take three long years after the EU referendum for Johnson to become leader. How did he use that time to grow his base? The main event for him in those three years was that he was elevated to the role of Foreign Secretary to Theresa May. Uh, She did him a favour in a way by giving him the stature of a big job. Remember, he hadn't had one until then. He'd been Mayor of London, but in terms of his major office of state, he hadn't had that. She gave him the status then of a very big beast in cabinet. But he didn't distinguish himself in that role at all. I mean, on the contrary, I think all people will remember of his time in that job is the gaffes and the missteps and the most serious, the gravest of all of them, being his mention of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and saying to a Commons committee that she had been training journalists in Iran, entirely contradicting her own testimony that she was purely there on holiday and to see family. My point was that I disagreed with the Iranian view that training journalists was a crime. Not that I wanted to lend any credence to Iranian allegations that Mrs Zaghari Ratcliffe had been engaged in such activity. I accept that my remarks could have been clearer in that respect and I'm glad to provide this clarification. Um, and, and, and she herself, Nazanin, has testified that that really added to her ordeal and kept her a prisoner of the Iranians for much longer. He was charged with being one of the Brexiters in Theresa May's cabinet. And again, a record of failure, really, because Theresa May didn't get her deal through. But still, we were in that period where those who loved him loved him and those things that went wrong didn't blame him for those. They Instead, they put all the blame on Theresa May. So he got a big title on the CV. He got to burnish his credentials as somebody who was a big beast. But of course, there was a trail of failure there and lots of clues to what kind of person he would be in the highest office. 
He became leader in the summer of 2019, and then we have the election in December. Boris Johnson has promised to repay the trust of voters after leading the Conservatives to an extraordinary election victory. Johnny, how did he pull off an 80-seat majority? Well, if you asked him, he would say it's wholly personal. It's down to his own charisma, his own personal appeal. And that's why even as he was giving his resignation speech, he was describing that win, that big win, as a personal mandate. And it was big. It was an 80-seat majority, the biggest Tory majority since 1987. Not as big as Tony Blair's majorities in 1997 and 2001, but big. Uh, And he would say, yeah, that's just my personal appeal. And, you know, a lot of Tory members did feel that, that, you know, after they'd had this dutiful, diligent, but dull leader in Theresa May, whose idea of a wild youth was having run unauthorised through a field of wheat, suddenly they had somebody who, you know, had some swash to his buckle in the form of Boris Johnson and and did seem to have an amazing effect on voters, including in red wall seats, traditionally hostile to the Conservatives. Boris Johnson would come out, people would suddenly appear on the streets from lifelong Labour families. They would call him Boris. They would want to pose for selfies with him. There was definitely some of that personal charisma playing a part There was also a very important slogan, which always matters in politics, get Brexit done. On day one of the new parliament in December, we will start getting our new deal through so we get Brexit done in January and put the uncertainty behind us. That really struck a chord after people were sick and tired of the deadlock and stalemate over Brexit. And he was promising to just end all that. People liked that. But what did he do with his landslide win? With a majority that big, you could absolutely transform the country. What was Boris Johnson's vision? Well, he said he did want to transform the country and his plan was this levelling up. It was very electorally driven. Essentially, he was saying to voters in the north of England, in the Midlands, the so-called Red Wall, you've trusted Meade and the Conservatives in a way you've never done before. There's going to be payback. You're going to get a reward for that in the form of levelling up this agenda to spend money in the north, in the Midlands, you know, rather than all the resources of the country being concentrated towards London and the southeast. That was the promise. In the end, he barely, scarcely did it. So when did the cracks first begin to show? In some ways, they showed right from the very start because there was the handling of the pandemic, which at the time, people were ready to rally around a leader. But even though Boris Johnson now says, I got the big calls right, and his defenders were saying that, if you remember, the early evidence is that in that early period, he got all the big calls wrong on the pandemic. The lockdown came very late. There was this promised to have put a ring of steel around care homes. Instead, elderly people were discharged from hospitals and back into care homes, even in some cases when they had and had tested positive for COVID, therefore seeding the disease amongst the most vulnerable group, namely the elderly. And at the same time, when Britain was far ahead uh, of other countries and having the highest death toll proportionally in Europe and at one point in the world, simultaneously among developed countries, no country was taking a bigger economic hit than Britain. So that was an example of a very big call that was got very badly wrong. People in some ways didn't pay full attention to it because 
um, he himself got sick. He was hospitalized and there was huge, you know, near death with coronavirus. And there was some sympathy for him. And then, of course, the vaccine and the vaccine rollout was seen to have been a big gamble by him. I mean, others would say the credit belonged to the people who were actually in charge of the vaccine policy. But anyway, the success of getting a vaccine rolled out in Britain, for many, it kind of erased the record of the early handling of the pandemic. But I would say the first big moment when you realised, okay, there's a problem here, the Dominic Cummings affair, when Dominic Cummings took himself during coronavirus to County Durham, to a family home there, you know, while his family had coronavirus. That was against all the rules, and Boris Johnson did not fire him. In some ways, it was a dress rehearsal for Partygate, except in Partygate, it wouldn't be his chief advisor, it would be him. I apologise unreservedly for the offence that it has caused up and down the country, and I apologise for the impression that it gives. But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken, and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. That began to erode things because of this idea that people had bought into the notion that we were all in this together and people even were ready to go along with that, to sacrifice their own personal liberties at great cost, great human cost. And the unforgettable image of the period will be that image from April of last year of the Queen mourning alone for her husband of 73 years at that funeral, sitting, looking small, clad in widow's black, and unable to have the consoling touch of her own family. People thought we are all doing this, even the head of state is doing this. And when the first Partygate revelations came out just before Christmas last year, I think there was anger and shock, but there was also a kind of sadness because something quite precious had been taken away the idea that our leaders the very people at five o'clock every day in those press conferences were telling us you have to keep socially distant from people you cannot go to a funeral the hospital bed I think people felt as if they had been fools and there are people who obeyed the rules who blame themselves who think now that they shouldn't have done they should have done the right thing for their dying mother, father, uh, uh, husband or wife, rather than thinking of the rules. And look at polling. It absolutely plunges at that point or it goes down substantially at that point and irreversibly. He's never got that back. There is that old cliche, isn't there, that if someone shows you themselves, you should just believe them. And he has consistently shown himself. And if MPs and voters were willing to turn a blind eye to his character flaws in the 2019 general election, do the claims of his now resigning cabinet ministers over matters of integrity wash with you? No, I've got to say they don't. And most political journalists will have spoken to these people who are now claiming to be uh, appalled by what's happened. And they, they will know that, you know, these people were prepared to accept all that because it meant they had their own jobs for a long time. And that was the trade-off they made. As somebody put it, I think, in a tweet, you know, these are people who've been crawling through the sewer for three years and have only just now noticed the stink. Uh, the, the deception and the lying has been such a pattern going back 
35 years i mean to his to when he was a junior junior journalist at the very beginning of his career his editors knew it his tory colleagues knew it and they voted for him in the summer of 2019 and again then you would hear them say oh i know he's a bit of a um bit of a rogue boris they were parking to one side the ethical concerns because they thought well that's you know though it's nice if you if you're a good ethical person but it's not essential he'll still be able to be a good prime minister and what this has proved these last 3 years is that's actually not true that if you are a morally suspect individual as he is eventually that will out and it did and by then it was too late they had tied themselves to someone who is a stranger to the truth and they they can't put that on him that's on them Coming up, in a post-Johnson era, what's left of the Conservative Party? Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday the 4th of July, so make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Johnny, yesterday Boris Johnson announced his resignation. How did you take it in watching that statement? I mean, there are resignations that come as a big, big shock. This was something that did feel foretold, that you somehow knew, even in that high watermark of the December 2019 election, when there was that massive landslide, something felt like this this will not last. It can't last. This won't end well, because he just doesn't have the you know moral equipment, the character to lead a country. And it was why many people in his party said he should never be leader. And why you can go back, you can read the columns I wrote in 2008 saying he wasn't fit to be mayor of London. And so you felt it was somehow destiny, that it would all end in tears. It took a long time and caused a lot of damage and harm uh, on the way. I know it's only three years. It was a brief premiership, but he managed to pack in quite a lot of damage to our system, our belief in our institutions, in our democratic norms in our belief in trust in the public realm and in the rule of law. These are serious things. They're not glamorous or exciting things. They're not funny things like he specialises in, but they matter and he badly damaged them. I don't think it's also an overstatement to say that there has been a regression in Boris Johnson's time in power. I mean, the notion of culture wars, what he's done for tolerance and race relations in this country... For me, it feels personal. But Johnny, what do you see as the most damaging part of his legacy? I know what you mean. And it's quite true that he was somebody who was prepared to use very sort of casual smirking racism when it suited him, uh, referring to Muslim women in burqas looking like letterboxes or bank robbers. 
And there's more in that vein, incidentally, if you go back through his fictional writings and all kinds of things. It's all pretty ugly. But I have to say the central thing, his big lasting legacy, the one that actually even his admirers will say is what gives him his place in history. But to me, it's a negative place. Is Brexit. I mean, this is, this, to my mind, was a terrible mistake in the history of this country. And he did it through a big deception. It was a con trick. I mean, people will talk about the 350 million on the side of the bus, but the project itself was a contract, telling people that you can move further away from your neighbours and yet become richer. Not true. A lie, really. And a myth and a fantasy, delusion. So on him and on those people who enabled him is a desperately destructive legacy that, you know, will take many, many years to repair. Johnny, what is next for government now? Well, you've got this strange interim period now where Boris Johnson is magically transformed into a caretaker prime minister, where he's no longer leader of the Conservative Party, but he does remain in Downing Street, supposedly to oversee the selection of a new leader. So there'll be a Conservative leadership contest. Exactly how that works will be announced by the Backbench 1922 committee when they meet on Monday. There's some question whether or not MPs will challenge that timetable and try and essentially telescope it and bring it forward because they're uncomfortable with the idea of a man who they've all publicly said is unfit to be prime minister being there until, you know, the autumn, given that it's midsummer now. But the idea is that, yeah, he remains in charge. There, there are cabinet ministers. Some of them may be people who did the job before. They have become unresigned and may return. He's talked about appointing his own cabinet to new people, and there are some appointments already in there. So it's a very odd kind of limbo period that we're entering, a kind of political transition period. But we have seen it before. When Theresa May resigned, she didn't stop being Prime Minister for another six weeks. And there are people who do wonder if Boris Johnson is deliberately drawing this out in the hope that something might come up and that things will look different in September, October. He's one of those people who thinks if you're there, then you never know. And Johnny, is there any credibility in the line of thought that between now and October, he's such a wild card he might even call a snap general election. Well, when Boris Johnson is concerned, never say never, right? Because the guy is a rule breaker. And so therefore, it's not inconceivable. But I think everybody uh, who's been asked about this says that if somebody else in Parliament could command a majority, there really is no justification for an election. Um, the You have an election if there's nobody around whom... Uh, a coalition or a government can be formed. But the Conservatives, as a party, have a majority of, you know, 77, 78, whatever it now is. And therefore, they could, they just need a different leader. And so there's no justification for a dissolution and therefore an election. So I think that wouldn't happen. And it was, it's noticeable that when Boris Johnson sort of hinted at it on Wednesday, which he did as a kind of threat, the threat was quite quickly withdrawn, even rhetorically, because I think it is a non-starter. How badly do you think Johnson's unravelling has damaged the reputation of the Conservative Party in the short and long term? That's a big question. And part of the answer to that question rests with Labour, because they have to make sure it isn't just about him, Boris Johnson, 
but instead is a taint on all of the Conservative Party. The risk is that what happens to the Conservatives in 2022 is what happened to them in 1990, the risk for Labour. And that is that they say, we got rid of the leader who was causing all the problems. And now, guess what? We're a whole new government with a new prime minister, a new team. And therefore, the electorate think we got the change in government and therefore they don't need to vote the government out in the subsequent general election. That's what happened in 1990 and then 1992. The the, the Tories are amazing at reinventing themselves, at shedding skins and becoming a new entity. They've done it so often, one reinvention after another. And if they get away with it again, it might mean that this um, taint that should be on them isn't on them. So that's the job for Keir Starmer and the others, is to say, this isn't just about three years of Boris Johnson, this is about 12 years of Conservative or Conservative-led rule, and about the Conservative Party. Not completely easy, but that's what they've got to do. I think one of the biggest things we see about Boris is the fact that he is completely without shame. But it seems like there's quite a bit of that to go around with the Conservative Party. And I wonder, once those skins have been shed, who you think the frontrunners might be in this next leadership contest? Well, one of Boris Johnson's odd legacies is that he really did um, shrink the talent pool of the Conservatives. You remember he booted out 21 MPs who didn't want there to be a no-deal Brexit. He evicted them from the party. They've all gone. So, you know, somebody like Rory Stewart, now the most successful political podcaster with Alistair Campbell in the country, is out of the running. And you look at who he promoted in his cabinet. I mean, talentless group of people, mediocrities, many of them who would never get a job under anyone else. Um, so he's not got a whole lot of big beasts to choose from. But the, you know, Nadim Zahawi will be a candidate, Sajid Javid will be, because of that speech and because he was the one to move first. There's Liz Truss will obviously go for it. Again, I think a lightweight, but there she is as Foreign Secretary. Jeremy Hunt might try a hand, Tom Tugendhat. I think anybody who voted Remain is going to really struggle. We know that Suella Braverman wants to have a go. I don't rate her chances very high. Um, yeah, <laughs> It's a very odd incursion. Yeah, I think so. Jeremy Hunt, uh, and I mentioned alongside Tom Tugendhat as a Remainer. I think there's a, the sensible wing of the Conservative Party would really like it to be him. Let's say he made it into the final two. Again, that chemical reaction thing. So after a, a sort of wild, charismatic guy, you want a stable, boring guy. So maybe Jeremy Hunt has a chance there. The problem he has is when it goes to the Tory party membership, those two names are advanced to them. They always go for the most Eurosceptic. My guess is they wouldn't vote for him for that reason. But who knows? There have been surprises before. But you, you look at them and you don't feel any of them are massively inspiring figures but you know they they said the same about John Major and two years later he won a general election. Johnny I've got to ask and I can't really think of another way to phrase it but it was an extraordinary majority the biggest since Thatcher. How did Boris Johnson spaff it all up the wall? (laughs) Uh, He did it really was a disaster of his own making there's nothing else and no one else for him to blame apart from himself And he ruined his chance. He spaffed that 80-seat majority up a wall because he was himself, ultimately. And that is somebody who cannot be honest, believes the rules apply to other people and has contempt for anything that might restraint his will to power and his ambition. There is something... 
borderline Shakespearean about it because the he was undone by his character flaws, not by anything else, nothing external to him. Maybe he's if he does now work on this biography of Shakespeare, maybe he'll appreciate that a little bit more. I said when we we when we started that character is destiny. Uh, his fate was in a way foretold by the person he is. Johnny, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nasheen. It's uh, therapeutic to talk about it. That was Jonathan Friedland. You can read his piece at theguardian.com. It's called His Toxic Spell is Broken. Boris Johnson Trips Over His Own Lies. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams, Thomas Glasser and Natalie Khatena. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.